Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm going to start with a big thank you to Victor Adair for filling in while I've been away the last few weeks. Uh, so much to talk about, but I've got to tell you this. I'm going to do my quote of the week this week has to be my favorite quote of the year so far. It's one that made me laugh, and I know it's going to infuriate some people. It's a great one. I hope you stay with. Plus, I've got a, a shocking stat this week. People have been worried about, hey, we've got one side saying, don't worry about the debt buildup in Canada. Other side saying, hey, it is a concern. Well, my shocking stat deals directly. And I'll tell you, one side seems to be gaining edge, an edge on that one. I've also got Martin Straith with me. Looking forward to that. Uh, Martin's got lots to say from the trend letter about the current situation in the market, whether we'll talk a little bit about the gold movement, but we'll also talk about debt, etc. But I've also got Meredith Angwin. She's considered one of the pr- primary experts in our electrical grid. And it's sort of funny. I sort of smile when I think anytime that I've added sort of facts and research into that whole debate about renewables uh, and electronic ve- electric vehicles. It's not welcomed by a lot of people, I'll tell you, at least from the backlash I get. Well, they're not going to be happy with this. She's one of the foremost experts, author of books on nuclear energy, but also in this case on the fragility of the electrical grid. And I think it won't be long to really expose how little we know about something so fundamental as our electricity. Anyways, Uh, I look forward to having a chance to chat with her. So much more coming. But first, you know, after all the talk about interference of the Communist Party of China into Canadian politics, and of course the report by David Johnston, I mean, it's been dominating the headlines over the last couple of weeks. You know what? There's still one big elephant in the room that gets overlooked. I know there's no shortage of comments about the government's refusal to honor the wishes of the majority of parliament and vast majority of the public to call a public inquiry. And instead, they choose longtime Trudeau family friend, member of the Trudeau Foundation, David Johnson, someone who had extensive dealings with China and the Communist Party to be the special rapporteur. Come on, any objective observer would appreciate he's irredeemably compromised from the outset due to those connections. But if the goal was to restore confidence in the electoral process, come on, he was a strange choice. It was an absurd choice, given there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of other people who could have done the job, who had no ties to the prime minister or the family foundation or business dealings in China. Well, it's tough not to conclude that restoring confidence was not the goal and instead was superseded by political considerations. But I'm not going to go further into that. But I will point out one important aspect of the story that's been ignored, and that is the abysmal record of our elites, including David Johnson, members of the business community, as well as conservatives and liberals who ignored warnings about, uh, you know, from CSIS for about two decades. The point is they got China wrong for years, starting with the foundational assumption that if you increase economic ties with China, that would liberalize the communist regime. Well, in fact, it's done the opposite. Now, I'm not knocking it for this. I mean, it began with Richard Nixon's visit to China in 1972, maybe culminated with the admission of China to the World Trade Organization in 2001. But, you know, it's been pretty obvious since. I mean, they were wrong. And it became obvious, in the, you know, especially in the immediate aftermath of Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2012. I mean, increased economic ties and liberalization of trade strengthened the Communist Party, didn't liberalize it. I mean, it paid for the establishment of the most extensive surveillance state in history. It paid for the expansion of the Red Army, facilitated China becoming the biggest human rights abuser on the planet, along with China's stated goal of increasing its influence around the world, including in Canada. 
Now, that's too brief a summary, but I think you get the idea. A liberalized, less belligerent communist state through increased business, financial, social ties with China's Communist Party proved to be completely wrong, dangerously wrong. But the real problem is that this, not that the assumption was wrong. I mean, come on, I appreciate that. They had to try, tried it out, et cetera. But it took so long to recognize that it was wrong. And on that score, Canada is demonstrably last when it comes to that recognition among the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. I mean, despite so many warnings from CSIS, the Canadian military, people like John Radcliffe, come on, he's the former head of the National Intelligence Agency in the U.S., and he stated, Beijing intends to dominate the U.S. and the rest of the planet economically, militarily, and technologically. Those sentiments have been reinforced by Xi Jinping on more than one occasion. Do you really think about this? Canada was still training Chinese military personnel on Canadian soil as late as 2019. The BCNDP government sanctioned a program to train China's police in the province. Come on, talk about late. Worse still is that many Canadians don't recognize the danger that China represents. And this is the point. It includes members of the current government, many of the Laurentian elites, including Mr. Johnston. Some will suspect ulterior motives. Clearly, there was a lot of money coming from China and Canada, but we don't know. Maybe a public inquiry would expose the extent of how much money came into our country. But my point is this. Some of these elites still show no sign of fully appreciating the Chinese threat. Despite the communists breaking things like the International Treaty on Hong Kong, despite kidnapping two Canadians, despite a long record of espionage and stealing industrial secrets. You remember when the Chinese spies were escorted from Canada's National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg? Despite also their numerous threats against uh, Taiwan. Some of these people still don't get it. And they're the ones who are making decisions now. I mean, I say forget the obvious conflict of interest. It's important for sure. But David Johnson is a member of the Laurentian elites that include people like former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, business elites, university administrators, who dramatically underestimated Chinese motives and aggression, many of who are doing business with the communists. As for election interference, how about this one? The former Canadian ambassador to China, liberal cabinet minister, John McCallum, in an interview in the South China Morning Post, July 2019, you know, before that fall election, advised the Communist Party to refrain from more actions toward Canada because, in quotes, anything that is more negative against Canada will help the conservatives, who are much less friendly to China than the liberals. And now we hear, by the way, that senior members of government didn't even bother to read the brief sent by CSIS warning about the communist threat. Here's my thing. It's straightforward. You can set aside the conflict of interest for this time. But the track record of the very people who are deciding what we should do with China now should disqualify them. The government and the Laurentian elites have proven incapable of protecting Canada's interests, including the electoral process. Despite numerous warnings from CSIS, they couldn't protect Canadian citizens of Chinese ethnicity with family in Hong Kong or mainland China, including members of parliament. No, forget the rest. They've proven to be incompetent when it comes to dealing with China. Hasn't one of the big messages over the last at least couple of years, Ken, that we really don't understand 
where our electricity comes from, how it gets there, really some of the, the practicalities of if we're going to go renewable, some of the practicalities there, or of hydro, or certainly of nuclear, that's been very controversial to this point, all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Meredith Angwin is the person who I think a heck of a lot of analysts start with because of her amazing work on the subject of energy, uh, the electrical grid, how it works. And it was before it was popularized by the latest crises. Her book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid, is literally a classic considered by uh, people in the business. Also, strategies for pro-nuclear advocacy, again, done well in advance. Uh, Meredith joins me now. Meredith, I was thinking I wouldn't mind your crystal ball, by the way. Uh, you know, so, so you wrote about the fragility of the grid in 2020. And then uh, what was it, an hour later, Texas decided to show you what a real blackout looked like? And, uh, the book was published in late uh, 2020 in Texas. Yeah. Didn't have a problem till February 21. So it was like, I was, I was, I was. Nine weeks ahead of time. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Everybody turns in, what the heck has happened here? Let me ask you this. I mean, it's straightforward, but are you surprised by the lack of sophistication or understanding about something so primary as electricity, about the grid, about transmission, uh, which, of course, integrates with renewable energy or any change we have in mind there, all of that kind of stuff? I mean, it just seems to me that some of the most straightforward concepts are not understood. Well, I, I'm surprised and not surprised. Um, I, I think I'll just uh, illustrate this with the story. I, I went to a meeting about uh, teaching uh, children about science or whatever, and uh, there was someone there that was talking about um, teaching them about electricity. And, uh, and I said, oh, you know, it's really amazing to me that the, the fundamental equation for a heat engine is so simple and you can teach it to the kids. It's the high temperature minus the low temperature over the high temperature. It's the maximum efficiency that that heat engine can have. And you know, our, 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 uh, turbines and our, our cars and everything that takes heat and turns it into mechanical work is basically a heat engine. So we're just surrounded by heat engines and, and the, and the, the, the ruling formula is very simple. And he says, oh, no, we don't explain that to them. That, that would be too complicated. I think he hadn't heard of it. But at any rate, the next question, I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, we talk about photovoltaics. I said, are you kidding me? Quantum jumps, Fermi levels, you do that? And he said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> anyway, so what I'm trying to say is people haven't been given any even accessible technical grounding in it. I mean, I think that quantum levels and Fermi geometry are harder to explain than the heat engine formula, but they're not that hard. I mean, if you have to calculate them, they're hard. But if you mm -hmm. want to just uh, know about the wonderful uh, uh, knowledge that uh, Enrico Fermi uh, uh, came up with, he was he was a uh, he was a man for the ages. When you think about what. He did both both about nuclear and about radioactivity and the first nuclear uh, chain reaction. And his whole work on Fermi-Dirac statistics is the basis for everything. Mm -hmm. It's the basis for everything that we, every electronic thing we use. 
I was just thinking along those lines uh, on the, uh, the, during the week, just thinking that people have to under, now I'm talking about economics now, have to understand if you want to talk about price of things, well, energy is introduced to everything, everything we do. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's to power a, a big machine, a small machine, it might be inherent, but to misunderstand that. So uh, let, forgive this question because this is really simplistic. It's nice you've spent, and by the way, I should have mentioned you're a working chemist, speaking of science. Well, I was, I'm retired now. I'm in my yes. I'm not working in a lab. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, so you've, you've written, you've broadcast, you've done this on the electrical grid. So this is one you're going to leave this and phone a friend and say, this guy was an idiot because <laughs> he asked me to summarize something so complicated. But the bottom line is, as I said, you know, as you mentioned, Texas in February 221, blackouts became real. We hear about blackouts in California. Uh, South Africa just has experienced about 80 percent, right. you know, blackouts. And, and every day, I, I literally, you could Google blackout and you see who's having a problem. Is this something that's just going to be we're going to have to live with? I mean, I know I, I forgive the oversimplification, but is this going to be just an ongoing story here? Well, let me say that, that, that I divide the grid into two kind of sections of uh, thinking about it. One is the, the policy grid. The policies we put in place, like renewable portfolio standards, or we, we love nuclear, we hate nuclear. And then there's the physical grid with, um, with uh, uh, the uh, transfer of energy across transmission lines and into your home and stuff like that. And basically... The problem is that we have made so many bad decisions on the policy grid that it is affecting the physical grid. And the trouble with that is that while we can talk about the policy grid until we're blue in the face, uh, and we can really, you know, we can, we can set up, you know, plans and we can do this and that. When you get right down to it, when it translates to the physical grid, the physical grid can only do what the physics allows. Mm -hmm. And that means we end up with things like blackouts. So when you say, are we stuck with blackouts forever? The answer is, unless we change our policies, we are probably stuck with them forever. And, and of course, we have policies that are so absurd uh, what I mean by that is that we are simultaneously supposed to conserve energy and conserve electricity and electrify everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's and a wonderful not, example. I mean, really, I mean, you can hear anybody talk, uh, and it's the same person will tell you that it's important for the world that we get rid of our gas water heaters and gas stoves and, 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 and electrify everything and that we also save electricity because, well, you know, it, 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 it we don't want, uh, we don't want, um, uh, fossil fired electricity and we don't want nuclear electricity and, you know, uh, even the renewable people are willing to say that renewables are not going to take over a hundred percent of what we're using now. It's going to be somewhat less and uh, we've got to conserve. And I'm like, wait a minute, is this two parts of the same speech or are you just gone into some kind of schizophrenic uh, uh, <laughs> uh, dual personality event? I mean, I, and I, I don't mean to be, uh, I had a, a friend in high school who had a schizophrenic break, so forget about what I said, schizophrenia. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, basically it, it's, 
you, you can hardly describe it in any rational way that people would say both things in one interview. Yeah. Well, and I just think, again, we've been focusing on money talks and I think early also on just the a fundamental inadequacy of the practical approach, you know, a transmission, which of course you are an expert in, but I mean, just even telling someone, you realize how much you've got to change the transmission, how much you've got to change that grid, regardless of some of the other constraints, if you want to go EV everywhere, you know, and it just seems no planning for that whatsoever or nothing adequate, I should say, because someone might say, hey, we're putting up a charging station outside the city or something, but it's inadequate. It's not even close. No, it, it, it isn't close. And, uh, and also there's a feeling that somehow or other one size fits all, that if you, you have charging stations, then everybody will be fine because most, uh, most charging stations, let's say uh, you can do 40 miles uh, uh, if you have a uh, hybrid, okay, on a charge. Well, okay, that, that's actually quite nice in the city. But mm-hmm. if you're out here in, in, in Vermont, I mean, things are not very concentrated. I mean, if you had, for example, a, a tradesman, an electrician, he could expect to drive his car what to 150 miles in a day to get to all the places he has to go. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, you know, it isn't a, it isn't like he can take a subway and you know get get from here to uh, to uh, the outskirts of Burlington to do a job. Does that come back to this this sort of ideological one size fits all? Because I'm thinking when you say wide open spaces, my goodness, I'm in Canada. Isn't it just one big wide open space with a few exceptions? You know, but I mean, a very uh, a very important point you're making that they have one size fits all. Oh, we're going to be all uh, electric by 2035 or something. That, that's what well, that's what our number is here. Uh, but some go 230. You know, it's just the impracticality is just mind blowing, and all of that all that that statement really means in terms of if it was going to be true, what you'd have to do to accomplish that. Well, my feeling is very much if it can't happen, it won't happen. And so mm. that sometimes I just, I just say, okay, they can make all these statements, but you know, it's uh, fine. It, it isn't going to happen. So I, I mean, I'm not going to lie awake at night worrying that it'll happen. And you know, it just, it just simply can't happen. So it won't happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's a, a sort of cynical thing to say about what other people are devoting their lives to. You know, they are devoting their lives to electrify everything. But I, I see a lot. We talk to a lot of people, though, who've come to that realization. And at times, you're right. It's, it's emotionally painful. You know, it's difficult. But the practicality just hit them on the head so often that it was so obvious. And I'm talking... I know people from the mining industry, you know, some of the leading cobalt miners, for example, or coffer or lithium, the list just goes on. And as soon as you put it on paper with some practicality, they come back and say, no, that can't, as you say, I love the way you put that, that can't happen. You know, it just simply can't happen. So let the politicians keep talking about it. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the problem is that I think that everything Raising a child or, or becoming a, a, a fully adult person, I think a lot of the things you do are about learning what is possible and what isn't possible, what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of. Your average child, a little tiny kid, 
will be much more scared of a dog barking at them behind a fence than of a car coming down the street. So you have to explain to them that the dog's behind a fence and most dogs are friendly and that car could kill them. And they don't know that automatically. <laughs> and and so I feel that there's a lot of things that, yeah, it, would be, it, it can't happen so it won't. But meanwhile, we're living in this fantasy world where we don't understand what we should be aware or afraid of and what we should just say, well, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you, you know, with the book Shorting the Grid, I got a lot of coverage, especially as I say, from people who I call sophisticated in a good way, in a very positive way. Uh, they would look and say, well, they did. They looked and said, nobody's done this. Nobody looked at the hidden fragility of our electric grid. And it's a part of that reality that isn't convenient for the political narrative. You know, I mean, to right. say, wait a second, we got to deal with this. Have you noticed any sort of political take up on this policy related take up on the stuff that you clearly and it's not debatable. I mean, that's the, the book is incredibly well written in terms of engagement. Uh, I was very, you know, the bottom line is I wish I could write that well to engage on it. You know what most people would say is a complex subject, you know, I mean, and you managed to convey it. So it's they can't use that excuse. They don't understand is what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> Have you seen a political take up? Is there a political take-up? Yes, there is, but it is um, – I'm just hoping it will continue to grow. So, for mm -hmm. example, I was uh, asked to speak to a, a, a symposium put together by the um, the Connecticut legislature. And uh, so I spoke, and our grid operators, the chairman of the grid operators spoke, other people spoke too. And what I'm trying to say is that when I was being asked questions, the people who were asking the questions, they were – uh, only the legislators could ask questions, as I remember it, this, so everybody could watch. Uh, they were they were very familiar with my book, uh -huh. so you know. I mean, I'm hoping that there's uh, that this will happen in more legislators, legislatures, and stuff, and and uh, and and that people will will read it and say, oh yeah, so that's why this stuff is going on. And so I think there is somewhat of a change. You can see in, in Europe, for example, the we're going to kill all the nuclear plants as soon as possible and be just like Germany is sort of fading out. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to be like Germany and kill all their nuclear plants. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that's a, that's the side that I was looking at is there has been progress. I think you wrote uh, strategies for pro-nuclear advocacy in two th or it was published in 2016. Obviously, you'd been active well before that. But I do see a po – I'm trying to be positive here, you see. I'm trying to finish on a positive note. But I do see a lot of progress on that, like common – not common sense, but research has sort of dominated, whether we're talking about nuclear waste and the myths around that the clean energy or the clean air part, the clean emissions part, all of that, I see we're in a much better place than we were certainly when you wrote that book, but even a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I also feel there's a lot of uh, grassroots organizing pro-nuclear where when I was writing that book, hmm. I asked a couple of people, I said, uh, well, um, if somebody wants to be anti-nuclear, there's at least five 
organizations I could name, Greenpeace, uh, yeah. you know, Sierra Club, uh, uh, Consumer Law Foundation, they can join. What can they join if they want to be pro-nuclear? And, and there was, it was kind of a big blank. And then someone said, well, if you're in California, you can join Citizens, CGNP, uh, Californians for Green Nuclear Power. I said, well, what if you're not in California? Okay. And, and then, and then someone else said, well, you can join the American Nuclear Society. I said, I am a member of the American Nuclear Society. It's about 150 bucks a year. And you have to show that you were in the nuclear industry. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a professional organization. It's mm-hmm. not, a, it's not a grassroots organizing organization. And now it's so different. I mean, it's so great. We've got, uh, Generation Atomic. We've got Mothers for Nuclear. We've got all kinds of organizations all over the place. And I just, I, I mean, it's like a dream come true for me to see that if someone wrote me from some state and said, hey, I want to get involved in being pro-nuclear, I'd have somewhere to send him or her. Do you think there was a tipping point in any way? Was it simply, as you mentioned, Germany still seems determined to be either finance Putin's war coming into the nuclear problem. I mean, I was very critical of that, uh, you know, shutting down, no backup power. You know, so who did they go to? Was Russia? President Obama warned them. President Trump warned them, "Don't do this," and they were just sending money out there the whole time. You know, but yeah. was there an event that tipped the power? Was it that all of a sudden we came to appreciate that there was no emissions? Maybe that became a wider spread kind of understanding. Uh, anything that you can guess at that no, sort of has, has changed the the tenor of the debate? I don't know about that because uh, I think that the tenor of the debate has changed because of no emissions, but I don't think that was the driving force. I think the driving force was fuel security. And when you get right down to it, if there's anything that the whole Russian thing did, it showed us that natural gas is delivered just in time to use it. And if it, if there's a, a glitch in the delivery, you don't get to use it. Well, for example, a nuclear plant generally keeps, uh, a, when it refuels, it generally keeps 18 months of fuel on site in the reactor before the next refueling outage. So you see, the thing is that Putin can't interrupt a nuclear plant. I mean, obviously, you can prevent the plant from being refueled 18 months from now. But in, 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 a, in a realistic sense, it's not as hair trigger as natural gas being delivered just in time. And people began to see, hmm, if I have nuclear plants in my country and they have fuel on site, I'm not as vulnerable to these guys as I would be otherwise. Uh, forgive me, but I, I, I can't let you go without asking just if you were going to, you know, sort of sit back, get the crystal ball out and rub it together, you know, and let's say that, no, we're never going to get a renewable based grid that's going to be, you know, 100 percent renewable. That's just nonsense. But where it's a dominant power source, maybe the dominant power source, are we talking 15 years, do you think, 20 years, 25? Uh, no, I don't I don't think it's ever going to be a dominant power source except in special circumstances. So for example, if you're on a windy island and you have and the other way you can get power is you uh you can have uh, fuel oil delivered and put in big tanks at the harbor as you can see on many islands. Uh then you know you're going to have as you're going to try and use as much of that wind as you can uh and back it up with fuel oil. But if you're if you're in a, a, a more of a, 
uh, a continent and you have more choices, then you, you're not going to want to do 100% renewables or even get close to it because it's so it's so scattered. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Um, I uh, let me. I, I'm, I'm on a new little uh, uh, crusade here in a way where people keep saying uh, renewables are intermittent, and I, I've decided that that is rather a sweet way to put it. And the the more that rely. Uh, rely reasonable way to put it is that renewables are subject to common mode failure. Okay, so elaborate, yes. Which means that one problem can shut down a whole bunch of stuff. And so you have common mode failure with um, with your solar systems every night. You have common mode failure for your wind turbines over a large area when the wind dies down. You know, like, for example, let's say recently there was a problem at one of our our nuclear plants and it went offline and people are expecting it won't be online for another two, three days or whatever. It didn't affect any of the other nuclear plants around here. Mm. It's not a common mode failure for nuclear plants. And everybody talks about the duck curve. And I'm like, yeah, you got a common mode failure there. That uh, what a wonderful point you're making, and it's just another reminder. There's, I would just, uh, as I say, uh, I'm, I'm going to give them the book again. But uh, you've been working on that, you know, campaigning for clean air, uh, 2016, shorting the grid, the hidden fragility of our electric grid. As I say, I had that. Rec- By the way, uh, Meredith, I had that recommended to me so often. That, that's how I. No, I'm serious. All your uh, friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I had to go, but. But this is a great example to finish on that people don't aren't familiar with what you've just said. They don't know the ins and outs of renewable grids. And I mean, I, I backed it up ages ago, right back to we got people in charge who don't know the sun doesn't shine every day, you know, <laughs> who haven't figured out the wind doesn't blow and they might need some backup power. I mean, it's that it's, it sounds embarrassing. It's so fundamental. But uh, as you've just uh, said, with the common load failure, failure, this is this is sophisticated stuff that we haven't allowed for, and yet we're pushing ahead like it's going to happen, and it's not going to happen without huge disruptions. Uh, I hope it just won't happen. I hope that what we'll have is a grid that is dependent mostly on nuclear, and that uh, and for load following, nuclear can load follow, uh, but it tends to be expensive for that, and so maybe for load following, we'll have a mixture of uh, renewables and fossil and batteries. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything against renewables except that they are being overpromised. You see what I'm trying yes. to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we're acting as if uh, it's not overpromised. Uh, this, yeah. this is such great stuff. Look, I got to thank you for finding time for us. Oh, it's uh, you know, yeah. No, it's been terrific. And, and, and I say very important stuff. And that's why when, you know, people want to weigh in, that's great. But weigh in with understanding. And the book is called Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. Meredith Angwin, thanks so much for finding time for us. Thank you for inviting me. Time now for the quote of the week. And I got to add, I mentioned this earlier, this has got to be my favorite quote so far this year. Because I love its bluntness and the fact that it cuts through the ideological nonsense. Why don't we say what we feel? Uh, The political drama of the moment. Nope, doesn't miss the forest for the trees. It comes courtesy of Elgato Mallow on Substack. In quotes, I've been musing of late 
about just how it came to pass that the entirety of Western governance seems to become bereft of reality and competence, and generally run by people who appear to be about as smart as a soup sandwich, and have yet managed to accrue not only such intense confidence in their own planning ability and vision, but in addition gained access to the levers of power to impose their addled ideas upon the rest of us while aided and abetted by a cheerleader class that eggs them ever onward, end of quote. Hey, by the way, I do have an idea what happened. How did this come to pass? Well, once we dispensed with merit, come on, merit or achievement as criteria for selection, when we do away with accountability, diminish responsibility, when we emphasize what we say over what we do, come on, it was bound to catch up with us, and it has over time. Just look at our government and how many operations are a failure. I'm worried about health care, as I think most Canadians who are paying attention are. But come on, can't get a passport in this country? That list is way too long. You listen to any Auditor General's report. Read the Parliamentary Budget Office. Oh, my goodness. You know what it is? Scary part. We're just starting to live the consequences. I'm going to bring Michael Levy in right now. Michael, I'm going to just hit you between the eyes right away. And it's really interesting. We've had months of people saying there's going to be an economic slowdown, maybe recession. And that still may come to pass, you know, late year or whatever. But, man, we get those uh, first quarter numbers for the gross domestic product. And we see economic growth is really exceeding what virtually anyone was saying. Well, Mike, it really is. Uh, it came in at an annualized rate of 3.1%. Hey, we're supposed to be slowing down here and 3.1%. I mean, what, what the analysts were first talking about was barely 1% growth. And we come in at 3.1% in the first quarter. And that just you know, sort of triggered in my mind, Mike, that the Bank of Canada might be a little more interested in raising interest rates, maybe a little before they were talking about. Bay Street had only expected 2.5%. Central Bank, Bank of Canada expected 2.3% growth. And, you know, this is all despite uh, the fact that we've had eight consecutive interest rate hikes, uh, increases in 2022 and to early 2023. So consumers obviously have, have uh, continued to spend. It just hasn't seemed to put a damper on every or, or things, Mike. Yeah, that, that's interesting, though, that, you know, one of the big strengths has been consumer spending. So they haven't backed off, you know, pretty much with that, especially when I saw overseas travel, like travel abroad. That was up uh, off the top of my head, about 6.8 percent, a big jump in vehicle sales, whether it's a truck, an, an SUV or a van, big jump there. So you're right. The consumer's back in there with both feet. Uh, I think the big thing, though, is, Mike, and when, when you say, OK, why do I care? I care because it's an interest rate story. And I, I would think that Hey, these are, there's a lot of mixed signals. There's a lot of areas uh, to look at. But bottom line is, there's no thought about lowering rates. I mean, that's completely off the table. They've, and, and, you know, and, and yeah, I know they're pausing, but, you know, that puts an upward pressure. There's other variables involved. But, you know, hey, let's just forget about the lowering rate scenario and talk whether we're going to stay steady or maybe bump up a bit. Well, and you know what? We could bump up a bit, but uh, Mike, you know the the U.S. the Canadian rates four and three quarter percent. Bank of Canada almost promised. They don't promise anything, but boy, Tiff Macklem was just absolutely clear that they were going to try not to raise rates for the next couple three policy meetings. Um, so we're four point seven five. U.S. rate is at five point two five percent. Analysts, analysts see, and this is really. This is conflicting. 
Analysts see a 40% chance at this juncture that the Bank of Canada will raise rates. They're still expecting uh, wage growth to ease, however. Friday's U.S. employment numbers for May tell a different story. And next Friday, Canada's numbers may parallel U.S. job growth. So we've got growth in the economy. We have job growth. But as you you and I talked earlier, is what's the quality? What's the quality of the job growth? Yeah, what, just, what are the underlying? Yeah, and I think that's important that we have to look how much of that is government employment because then interest rates aren't going to impact it. You know, private sector employment, uh, is it how many hours worked? And, and I want to come to the U.S. in that regard. I mean, they had a knockout number again, you know, uh, on Friday when they start talking about, what was it, Mike, 300 and they, they thought 190,000 were coming in. They got 339,000. That's a 78% jump. And then for the previous two months, April and March, they added another 93000 to the stat. Now, I realize that these people have to go out and spend the money they're making in order to affect inflation. But people are spending. And the fact is, let's do a half circle back to GDP. GDP's up because people are spending. They're consuming. Yeah, one of the things we talked about, this is going back, and it wasn't, I'm not saying this is a big insight, but we said we know that the Federal Reserve is looking at the employment number. You know, they've said that, well, they if they're looking at that employment number, yeah, I know they're in a pause right now, I think, or what did they call, uh, Jerome Prowell's been saying, maybe we skip for a term. Yeah. I mean, they, they could raise next week, but it, it looks like, I mean, again, no thought of lowering rates here. I mean, it's just whether they're going to have to raise them again. You may want more data. Bank of Canada may want more data. But, man, uh, if you're looking at employment, you haven't got a signal yet that says you've done enough. No, you really haven't. And, you know, the strong hiring and low unemployment have put an upward pressure on wages, Mike. And we can see that is that people are asking for and getting more money. And the fact is the more money that they're getting, it's not going into savings, Mike. It's going into spending. So when you have uh, um, average hourly earnings grew 4.3% in May over the prior year, similar to annual gains in March and April, that's inflationary. And again, I'll go back to what you said. It's inflationary as long as they spend, but with the economy going up, They've got to be doing something with that money. So I think it becomes a bit of a worry. Bank of Canada, if they raise, I would guess, if they raise by a quarter, they're going to do it at the next policy meeting, then try and hold rates for the rest of the year. I know Jerome Powell does not want to raise rates. They want to see what these rates, and this is what you and I have been talking about, rates at this level. Let's not ask for a change in a month for things to turn better in a month. They want to give it several months. But if things keep going like this, Mike, they're going to have to raise rates and that's going to be impactful and it's going to be a negative impact. And maybe not a surprise. I mean, the economy is massive. So you're going to get different sectors behaving differently within plus the government impact of it. So, yeah, I think they want more data, the wait and see. And there's still lots of people, uh, lots of analysts calling for a recessionary pressure by the fourth quarter, you know, or into next year. So, yeah, I I mean, this is like one of those old serial things, Mike, called to be continued. (laughs) 
to be continued. And absolutely, I, I, I think that we're going to be watching. We're going to be commenting on this. And Mike, something that you and I have been talking about, let's just take a minute and talk about inflation, rate of inflation. And talking about a basket of items that may cost $100 this month, and the rate of inflation goes up by about 9%. And that's what happened a month or two ago in Canada. Month over month, that same basket of items will increase in price by that 9% or cost $109. The next month, that same basket of items goes up only 4%. So you think, okay, 109 and it goes up 4% on the $100 to $113. You're measuring it wrong. It goes up 4% on the 109. So instead of it costing 113, it cost $113.36. The following month, if it keeps going up that rate of inflation, you do it on the last month's cost of the basket of items. So it's not just on that base 100, and that keeps adding on, piling on, piling on. And that's one of the huge situations that's transpired with inflation over these last months. Yeah, and that's what people are feeling. That's what they're feeling. You know, they don't care about these numbers we're talking. They don't care GDP or that. They want to say, what am I paying? You know, what am I paying when I go to the store? And that outlines why uh, it may be a little deceiving that, uh, you know, the rate of change slows down, but it's on a higher number. So all of that stuff's in there. And Mike, you're Mr. Cheerful. Thanks for sharing that with me. No. Okay. (laughs) Mike Levy, have a great week. You too. Thanks, Mike. Of course, one of the big stories this week had to be the debt ceiling and the machinations and the drama. But finally, they got an agreement. I think it's the 79th time they've had a debt ceiling issue since 1960. Made me feel a little bit about been there, done that. But uh, I don't think, well, I don't know. It seemed to me no one's surprised they actually reached an agreement. And I wanted to chat with Martin Straith about uh, the trendletter.com, by the way. The trendletter.com, of course, follows all of this. And I've got other things. I want to get to gold with him. I want to get to oil with him. And this incredible rotation within the market itself. But Martin, first of all, appreciate you being with us. But let me start with uh, the debt ceiling. Were, were you a big yawn all the way into it? Were you one of the people saying, you know what, I'll, I'll certainly follow the market's reaction to it, but, you know, they're going to get an agreement. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, it was a bit ridiculous. I mean, the drama, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you're watching CNN and and the drama and, and, and we all know what was going to happen. Just as you say, you know, what is it, 79, 78, 79 time in 63 years. I mean, that average is more than once a year. So, yeah, that was a joke. But I think the thing to me, you know, when we keep talking debt, you know, like here they, they just keep raising, raising the ceiling, raising debt, adding more. You know, here's, I just got some charts here I was looking at from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So the Canadian federal debt is $1.22 trillion. And that means that each taxpayer's share of that debt is $35,245. The debt is growing in Canada at a rate of 145 million per day and 6 million per hour. So, and so while those numbers are staggering, if we look at the US, it just blows your brains out because they have a national debt of $31.8 trillion. And that works out to 95,000 per person in the US. So that's man, woman, child, 95,000. And if you happen to be a taxpayer in the U.S., your share of that debt is 248000 But then if we look at the unfounded liabilities, 
in the U.S., so that's Medicare, you know, uh, Social Security. Well, they've had, they have unfunded liabilities totaling $188 trillion. And that works out to, get this, 560000 per person. Now, if you're a, a taxpayer in the U.S., your share of those unfunded liabilities is $1.46 And if you add in that, you know, their share of the debt, you're looking at yeah, another 248,000. So their share is $1.7 million of the debt. And so last quarter, the US spent $213 billion just servicing their debt. So that equates to 852 billion a year to service the debt. And so, you know, about a year ago, it was about 10 months ago, just as the Fed was starting to raise rates, the US Congressional Budget Office they issued a report, and so it's like 10 months old now, and again, it was before all the rates started going up, but they, at that point, said that the U.S. is going to add another $20 trillion of debt over the next 10 years. You know, all, the numbers come out as fast and furious, but there's a message there, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about Canada's debt, especially in the first quarter, what's got to be redeemed this year, or going to mature this year, rather, in the shocking stat, but the point is this, is that it gives you the hint why money is going to be worth less. You know, well, it is already worth less, meaning we don't buy as much with our dollars. And that's, I think the inflation discussion is a little bit off. It's just simply a, a, a decline in the purchasing power. But it just tells you it's inevitable. Like there's only one way you're going to deal with it. They're never paying it off. So they'll, they'll uh, you know, have to service, as you just said. And it's going to be with dollars that are increasingly worth less that the Federal Reserve in that case are just printing up or creating, you know, electronically. And that to me is, I'm just saying, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's the underpinning of what I see as a monetary crisis we're already in. And whether we discuss it in the right way, but that's the only way out. I mean, the numbers are too overwhelming. They're never paying it off. It's hopeless. So what do they do? I think they'll create the money. Well, I agree. And I think there's another way out too that, and we've been warning our, our subscribers for the last couple of years is I think we're going to see just a global sovereign debt crisis where mm -hmm. oh, I you know, agree. Pe people are just going to lose confidence in the governments and not buy those bonds anymore. You know, I mean, I know, you know, Mike, but I mean, public debt, you know, so government bonds versus private debt, so corporate bonds. I mean, when a company defaults, their assets are sold off and bondholders get some money back. But when a, co a government defaults, there's, there's no assets to sell. I mean, they don't have anything. So bondholders basically get held, you know, they have nothing left. And then you get this whole contagion thing. So once one country defaults, then panic, you know, kicks in. Remember, I mean, clearly back in what, 2012, I think it was when Greece almost defaulted. And then Portuguese bonds started going crazy and then Italian because, you know, investors in these other countries, they sort of look around and they go, well, well, what about us? Are our bonds safe? And then they sell their bonds. And then it's kind of like a global run on the bank. And then okay. governments, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, that's been my worry. Uh, you know, in confidence, I'm always talking confidence, Martin, you know, because the system is based on confidence. And I hear now a little talk about reduction in trust. This is the big picture. You lose confidence in your currency as over, I can count about 140 nations right now where the paper's not worth very much and it's worth a lot less than it was two and three years ago, alluding to what you've just said. And that's why I think the big challenge for individuals is how do you protect your wealth? How do you protect the store of wealth? Because, uh, you know, I think the cards are dealt. And, I, and again, 
we've already had the debt crisis in Argentina this year, in Ecuador this year, in Turkey. You know, the list goes on. It's, it's, it's there. You don't have to go very far to find out. And again, I think they've tried to handle the, in quotes, the default thing. I think Christine Lagarde, who was, uh, or who is uh, head of the European Central Bank, said it beautifully. She said, we can't default. We're just going to print up the money. So that's the old Milton Friedman said this years ago. He says, are we going to get our pensions, as you just said, about unfunded liabilities? And the answer was, yes, you're going to get your pension. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, you'll be able to buy a cup of coffee with it. I'm, exactly. I'm still, and, and we'll see how it plays out, but I'm in the camp. But what you're saying and, and I'm saying is, yeah, there's danger here beyond what the normal conversation is. And, and that brings me to a couple of other things here. You know, um, and one is the role of gold in all of this. I mean, again, if I'm looking to pr protect my purchasing power, I mean, people will tell me about Bitcoin. They'll tell me about gold. Um, you know, I think oil's definitely energy's in there for sure. You know, but that seems to be one of the challenges facing us. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, and just to, just to finish up on that debt thing, I mean, the one thing that we've been warning our subscribers for the last couple of years is get out of long-term government yeah. bonds. You know, short-term's short fine. You know, you can get five, five and a half percent uh, on short-term bonds. But, you know, right now, um, you just don't want to be holding long-term government bonds because, you know, they say that they'll never default, but, you know, I'm pretty skeptical on that one. I mean, uh, you know, you go back to this after the Second World War, you know, pretty much all European bonds got, they were defaulted. Yes, so, they were. Yeah. So I, I, I think I, that people, sorry, I, uh, let me just interject. I think the key is um, there is going to be consequences and then people can debate what they are. And, I, I, you know, I'll still go back to whether they officially default or not. It's what are they going to pay you back in? You know, dollars that right. can buy nothing or no dollars, you know what I mean? Like, I, I got a feeling that's a, a, a distinction without a difference, you know, in the end for the individual, their own personal finances will have been uh, decimated. And that's why I'm always on about that. Uh, the other thing you're saying about the bond market, which that's been a major recommendation of ours, you know, uh, since 2020 in August through October, lock in your rates now, the party's over and yeah, you could have skimmed a little and don't go long. And anyway, long, my definition of long, by the way, was three years. And I thought maybe I was getting a little risky at that. You know, so I think the message has got to be that. And it's because it's a sovereign debt crisis, as you said. A lot of uncertainty that's created around that. Right. And then, so back to gold, like you say. So gold is, you know, it's a store of wealth. It's certainly, to me, everybody should be having some gold. And then, you, you know, as investors, you know, you want to pick the right spot to keep adding to it. And so, you know, if we're sitting here right today, um, you know, gold just in uh, April hit, you know, 2070. So that was the new high. And then it retested that in May, but it couldn't break through. And so since that double bottom, you know, and we've been calling and looking for gold to pull back to about the 1960 level. And that's pretty much exactly what it's just done. And now it's been, so it's been pulling back in a series of, you know, lower highs and lower lows. And, and so this, this is a nice little correction we're having here. So last week it tested, you know, that that's uptrend line. So from November till now, is there's a nice uptrend line and it, it actually hits at another good support level. So 1960 is a really kind of key support level. Now gold tested that uh, just last week, um, but it, you know, it held and gold had a nice little bounce just up under 2000. And now it's pulled back on Friday. So it's dropped about another 27 bucks. So it's right back into that sort of, mid 1960 range so again 
uh, as investors, we want to really watch that support level. Um, if it if it breaks, I, I can see Goldman dropping down to maybe the 1900 level. And then if that doesn't hold, because there's quite a gap, you know, we had a big run up in uh, in March there. So if that doesn't hold, we have a double bottom of support at the 1825 level, and that should be a really solid bottom. And if we do get down to that, that would be a great buying opportunity. And in fact, you know, um, we really like how gold's been trading. Um, so we're really, you know, uh, we issue the trend letter every Sunday. I've got a couple new buy stops that'll be going in there for gold. So big picture, I think just as we were talking, you know, you know, as people keep increasingly lose confidence in how governments are managing the economy, they're, they're catching on. Like I say, you know, people keep talking inflation's, you know, 4%. Well, it's way more than 4%. And if your purchasing power keeps dwindling down, um, you're going to look for alternatives. And I think gold's going to be one of those places that's, you know, it's kind of like buying fire insurance for your house. You know, you hope you don't need it, but, you know, if you do, it's, it's pretty important to have it. Yeah, and as you say, the evidence is building. You'd probably be happy to have some protection against the declining purchasing power of the paper currency, as you would have been for the last several years. You know, uh, and I think that is the the mega trend going on at this point. Uh, I let me just jump back to the stock market for a second with you. That uh, you know, uh, I'm always saying this, but you know, talk about the classic climbing the wall of worry. You know, I mean, there's an, but it, maybe that's the exit out of bonds, or maybe that's people saying I've got more faith in the private than the public sector. Who knows? But, uh, you know, and you've had that concentration, of course, in whatever it is, eight or nine stocks have been the, the dominant force. But where, where, what's your just general take? It looks like there's some catch up. I mean, look at Friday's numbers, you know, 700 points, you know, uh, in the Dow, yeah. On the Dow. Yeah, well, you know, it's to me, you know, the 2023 so far, it's, it's been the great rotation. You know, it's an, an exact inverse of 2022. You know, 2022, you know, the stocks, the, the weakest stocks, you know, the NASDAQ or technology and the growth stocks, well, they've been the strongest performers so far. And conversely, you've got the, you know, the, the ones that did really well last year, you know, so energy value stocks you know, equal weighted indexes, they've been the weakest. And so the key here to me is what, what's really got, had my attention, and I, I know it's getting more publicity now, is, you know, markets are strongest when you've got wide breadth, and they're the weakest when you have narrow breadth. And that the, the market recently has been driven by this AI frenzy, as you say, those very few big tech stocks. You know, market breadth had never been this narrow before. So, so you've got those eight, eight to ten, you know, big tech stocks, and if they weren't in the S and P 500, the S and P 500 would have been negative. So it's a very narrow, very weak market rally. But again, this week, you know, if you look at a heat map this week, you know, if you looked at it last week or two weeks ago, it was all red except for those, you know, those those yeah. very few big um, big tech stocks. You know, I'm looking at one right now, and it's solid green. So this week, you know, like you say, the rest of the market is sort of kind of jumping in here and joining the, the rally. So we really have to watch where that goes because if you go back to December, out of the, you know, the S&P 500, 463 of those stocks were trading above their 50-day moving average. You know, uh, just the other day, I, I checked it against, only 173 of those stocks were trading above. And that number has declined consistently 
At the same time, the S&P 500 has been rising. So again, that, that's really showing how narrow this rally's been. And if you look at sentiment, you know, you've got the, the, the fear and greed index is showing very high. You've got uh, the put call ratio. I mean, it's at the lowest level it's been since, uh, since February, which happened to coincide with the market top then. So, so to me, you know, we're kind of at a point here where, you know, if, if we don't see, so the S&P 500, you know, it was trading in a narrow range between, you know, 4050 and 4200. Um, so we have been calling it to have to get through that 4200. It tried three times, but it did break through that last week. And now, so 4300 becomes the new ceiling there. So it's uh, on Friday, it got right up to that. So that's going to be a real, key, a real key for us, because if it can break through 4300, then, you know, then off we could go. And then I would think that a lot of these other stocks, you know, other than the tech mm -hmm. stocks would join in. But right now, that 4300 on our models looks like a very strong resistance. So I'm going to be really curious, really watching that level over the next week or so. Because if it doesn't hold and it breaks back down, uh, I think we could start to see, you know, you know, 4200 now becomes the, the, the new floor. And so if that were to break, I think we could head, you know, head for a bit of a correction real soon. The markets are getting really over, overbought here. You, you talked about, I, I don't want to let you go without talking about the, uh, part of that rotation, you know, that you're talking about. So oil was the biggest performer, oil stocks, the best performer a year ago or, or through 222. And now they've been the weakest or close to it, you know, for 223. Any exactly. take on any take on that? Does that does that just let me ask you, does that tell you, hey, this is a good buying opportunity or sit in the sidelines or, you know? Yeah, well, so we've we've been We've been, you know, we've been telling subscribers for the last, you know, like so oil was in a deep downtrend from somewhere about what June of last year, and then it kind of leveled off late December, and it's been trading sideways for the last, you know, since since that mm -hmm. period. So we've been trading, you know, in a range between, uh, you know, about sixty five dollars up to about eighty three dollars. So all through that period from December on, our models were kept thinking we're going to hit a lower level than the current, the level at that time was in the $70 range. And then we did hit. So in March, mid-March, we hit about $65. And yeah, we had a buy signal then. So we triggered, uh, I think we sent out about five, six or seven uh, buy signals. But here's the thing. So we're still very bullish long-term for oil. Um, that was a great buying opportunity, I think. But, it, you know, short-term, I'm seeing that, you know, we're still, we're still sitting in that 65 to 83. Mm -hmm. um, so my big concern here, Mike, is, you know, I know that a lot of the talking heads, you know, recessions becoming a back burner item. You know, to me, the recessions, are, it's real. You know, we've got some really solid indicators that have forecast recessions so accurately for so many years. Yes. So I think we're going to have a recession. And if we do, then that's going to hit demand for oil and that's going to hit oil prices. So short term, we need to be careful because if you look at the average recession, they, 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 you know, the yield curve gets inverted. They, all these triggers happen about six to 18 months ahead of time. Well, we're 12, we've been inverted. The yield curve has been inverted for 12 months now. So we're right in the middle of that normal range. That tells me that if we're going to have a recession, it will be this year. Yeah. So that's in the back. You know, we keep reminding our subscribers that's in the back of our mind. So for oil, 
Um, I think we were going to have another really good buying opportunity. And then longer term, I mean, we're extremely bullish on oil because, you know, on the demand side, you've got China and India. And now, I mean, we're talking those two countries represent 36% of the world's population. And they're both growing, especially India. And then you got on the supply side, you know, you've got this lack of investment, you know, capital expenditures in the oil sector, you know, they're at 35, 40 year lows. And the reason for that is because governments, you know, windfall taxes, increased regulations, no new permitting. So these oil companies haven't been spending on exploration. They've been, you know, they've been doing buybacks and giving out dividends. So that combination to me is going to create a massive supply problem in the next few years. So we expect to see $100 oil for sure, very likely 150 And I, I really think we'll see 200 in the next few years. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a great thing to finish on and tell people about the trend letter, trendletter.com. And uh, Martin, we sort of tricked your people and said uh, you were coming on and could we get a special offer? So I want to let people know to take advantage of that, the trendletter.com and get the details. We'll put it out on social media also. But in the meantime, you know we appreciate you finding time for us. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Mike. And, and also just on those special offers, um, any of your, your listeners subscribe, $100 of all subscriptions from this would go to Special Olympics. And, and just so you know, that is so much appreciated. You've also supported us in many other ways, but on this particular, uh, many thanks for that too. Have a, have a great week. You too, Guy. Take care. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, one of the monster stories, of course, in the last year has been the big rise in interest rates and the losses in the bond market. I mean, come on, that was a big feature in the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. As depositors left the bank in search of higher returns, well, the bank was forced to raise capital, but they'd have to sell their bond portfolio, which was worth one heck of a lot less. I mean, we've seen it everywhere. I mean, Great Britain's pension funds, Japan, etc. But even the central banks weren't immune to their portfolios taking a huge hit and sitting on a loss. But that's the investment side for bond buyers. The other thing is they still need money. So what about the borrowers? And I'm talking in this case, governments. And that brings me to the shocking stat of the week. With the federal government borrowing records amounts of money, and well, whether we could talk 2000, 221, 222, which brought the overall federal debt now over $1.2 trillion. I remember on the show, by the way, going back in November of 220, I was talking to the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux. And I said, yeah, the government's borrowing all this money. Why aren't they doing it on the long end? Why aren't you taking advantage and borrowing for 10 and 20 years? He said, simple reason. There's nobody willing to lend the government money for that kind of dough. Well, that time of whether uh, comeuppance of that, so we have a lot of short-term money, it was going to come due, presto, you're going to have to renew it at higher rates. That's happening now. As StatsCan reported this week, the federal government has $370 billion in debt coming due this year. And the borrowing, obviously, is going to be at a much higher rate because that was short-term money for most of it anyways. But how much higher? Well, compared to 219, so pre-COVID, the interest charges on the debt that have to be rolled over are 37% higher. And that percentage is higher still when compared to any shorter-term bonds they took. Look, if they took some of those bonds for one or two years, in 221, 220, you know, whatever it was, again, the interest cost is going up. Now, I wonder if people who declared that the federal government borrowing 
that much money was affordable, no problem. Anticipated the kind of size of the jump we've had in interest rates. One thing they didn't do is provide us with the assumptions they made when they're saying things like it's affordable regarding things like interest rate levels, uh, economic growth, et cetera. In the meantime, the implications are starting to hit $370 billion coming due this year, and it's going to be renewed at higher rates that you and I will be playing. I'm glad to be back with Ozzy Jurek, who's returned from the practice range. Why, of course, because he's got the big Special Olympics tourney coming up. He's got an all-star team, all-star in a lot of areas, not golf, but uh, other all-stars uh, are involved with that. Hey, Ozzy, who's on your team this year? Just quickly. We got David Steele, uh, the, the, the yep. one that we all hope because he gets further away than 150 yards from the tee box, and we need that. And we got Ralph Case, and we got Tony Neumeyer, and uh, we have been at this event for a few oh, years, know. and we've managed to get away from last place, and, and I don't get any credit for that. Well, I'm going to give it right now because all of you guys are big supporters of Special Olympics. You know, you're a hero down there, Ozzy, but Tony is also big and Ralph and, and David. I mean, so it's great. And yes, I think if I look at my notes, you guys came in a really whopping third to last last year. Very, oh, very yeah, good yeah, movement. Yeah. It was about I know an eight. In, in some people's mind, this is not an achievement. But no. look, after 15 years... You know, always last, you know, I mean, we went out with big celebrations, you know. Yeah, and, and you should have. <laughs> hey, let's talk about, uh, speaking of big names, Elon Musk. He weighs into the real estate market this past week by saying, basically, he's worried about a big decline, like a significant problem when home values dropping. Well, the interesting thing is I saw him on TV and he, he made a statement. He says, the laptop crowd is in la-la land. And by that, he meant that they all, you know, and, and he had a different take. It isn't just production that was waning if they're not in work, at work. He says it's a moral issue. You know, everybody has to go to work. The support workers, the truck drivers, the restaurant. But you, you get to stay at home. He felt it's wrong and it's wrong for a company to build a culture. So an interesting thing. But the big thing that he said is commercial real estate is melting down fast. Man, that is a big statement. And then he said home values next. So if you now had my attention. What, what do you think is, I mean, is it all interest rate related? Certainly, I mean, uh, you could make a very strong case that uh, the real estate sector in the U.S. has been hardest hit, not just by the raising rate. Well, it is. It's by raising rates. I was going to say there's other ways like that had translated. But uh, you look at the numbers and it, that seems to be the number one important sector that took it on the chin. Yeah, and although it's U.S. is such a big place, there's some areas yeah. that are doing quite well, but most of them are downturning. But I guess he's talking about commercial real estate as a shift to remote working poses a real threat to commercial real estate values in his view. Fewer commuters depress occupancy levels in office building. They affect traffic for commercial sites as shopping malls, entertainment. Everything becomes less profitable for investors, so the money won't be there. And the outcome, in his view, will be that smaller lenders are pulling back for fear of further bank runs, mass withdrawals of deposits, and the result is a credit crunch. And all that combines, in his view, to some tough times ahead. Well, and, and people should appreciate the psychology changes. Uh, and it has been in a, a period of abrupt change. So if uh, you can just see it, just some little thing comes in and presto, you've got a problem. I guess I, I, I take that and I, I agree with him, by the way, on the commercial side of things, because you do have uh, in some major centers, some huge occupancy problems that'll lower rents. But at the same time, cost of financing has gone up. That's not a formula that's going to breed success. 
but I, I look at that and I go, so what, is, what does that mean to individuals? And, and I just, the same thing we've been saying for three years, and it was right on, is don't be vulnerable to interest rates. That's where I still see, and, and I think, by the way, my view on what could happen in terms of if confidence drives up, and we saw this coming into the debt, so I'm going on and on, but it's important people note, we saw this in the month before the debt ceiling kind of negotiations. We saw a huge jump in rates. Why? Simple, confidence. If they don't get the debt ceiling, they're not paying off these bills in the, on time anyway. So all of that. So, yeah, I mean, I can see where he's coming from. And it just means as an individual, be aware of that. Yeah, no question. And he's concerned with that. The smaller banks, the regional banks that had their bank runs, they were usually uh, financing uh, a lot of these commercial uh, shopping centers, strip malls and so on. And they will not get back into that market. And as far as the housing market is concerned, it's actually showing some strengths. Home builders reporting new home construction is up. We have, but there's a lot less product on the market just like here. And, and Mike, I think it's the same reason. If I have a mortgage at 1.2% or even 2% and my job is to get a new house, I say, Martha, we're going to have to pay 6% now. My payment goes from 2000 a month to 4500 a month. Let's stay here. And I think that's a major reason that those yes. that we have sort of two kinds of classes of people. Pre-2020, I was in the, in the rush of prices going up, plus I locked my mortgage in. And then after that, I was going bananas in the increases, and I didn't lock in. You know, because in real estate, Mike, you make 10% of your money because you're a genius and 90% because you catch a great wave, right? Mm -hmm. And so here now we have two kinds of different uh, classes of people. One are very well off and the other one isn't. I, I want to jump into Canada because it affects what you've just said. You know, we're always talking and we've been talking well before it became a story about the lack of supply, the lack of meaningful, uh, you know, a, a program on the part of the three levels of government, what have you. But I want to talk about the report that came out this week that said that more than half of in greater Toronto area, half of those condo investors were actually losing money on the property. Again, you know, rising rates were one of the big stories there. Yeah, it's a great story, a great report by CIBC, Benjamin Tall, and then the company called Urban Nation. And they said just this last week that there is a negative cash flow, whereas last year, 48% of all condo investors uh, work cash flow positives. Now, with newly completed units, uh, mortgage costs, condo fees and property tax rising, all of them together, uh, it just is, is extremely difficult. And according to Benjamin Tall, this makes a meaningful shift that potentially signals a change in investor behavior. And they see this continuing, right? In, investors become unwilling to buy into pre-sales, then new condo demand would shrink with new construction, et cetera, and everything working against us in the face of having a million immigrants coming. To yeah, uh, uh, very straightforward, too, as you say. I mean, mortgage costs just went up, condo fees are going up, and property taxes go up. You know, presto, not a surprise that uh, a lot of the other, you know, the rents can't keep pace in a lot of areas, or they're stuck in a lot of areas. But again, that's going to limit supply, which again, will put more upward pressure on rents. I mean, it's all related in that way. But it's as you were just alluding to, we're talking about uh, as I say, there, we've been talking about a rental crisis. I don't see anything that dis, that would discourage me from maintaining that view. No question. And then C.D. Howe, of course, comes up with a great, uh, large, large report. Everybody should Google C.D. Howe and they look at their latest report where they're showing that the cost of barriers to land access in Canadian urban areas has added up 50% to the cost of housing in the Vancouver area, more than 20% in Toronto, 
and even Abbotsford, Victoria, Kelowna, Regina, Calgary, and Toronto, new home buyers pay an average of an extra $230,000 in a new house because of the limits on new building. I want to talk more about that uh, next week, but it's another just example. Uh, As you know, it's been driving me nuts for years. Politicians stand up and say we care about affordable housing and then make every effort possible to make it unaffordable. Ozzy, great to chat with you again. I'll remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. And look, we still probably have room for one or two teams at the Special Olympics Golf Tournament It's uh, June 15th. I only mention that because at that point you'll get to come chat with Ozzy, have a chance to visit. Uh, It'll be great to see you there. So, again, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Yeah, I think we have room for about two teams left. So go and join us. It's going to be a great day. But you'll see the all-star himself, Ozzy Jurek. Yeah, and I want people to remember if they're in the cheering section, I am feeling much better because I'm hitting fewer spectators. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no guarantee. Oz, ozbuzz.ca. I want to go live to the trading desk now, and I'm going to bring Victor Adair in. Vic, let me start by saying uh, I did a great job uh, the last few weeks. I uh, had great guests, by the way, you know, whether it's uh, Martin Muirenbeeld, uh, Greg Weldon, my gosh, Kevin Muir. Great stuff. Lovely to hear it. Nice to get a chance to chat with you again right now. Mike, it was fun to to do it, and uh, it, it is always fun to get on the show and and have some great guests. So that I mean, great guests make the show, right? Absolutely, and you're one of them. So let's talk. Hey, <laughs> I, I mean, there's a lot that jumps out at me, but uh, you know, there's that old expression, and I'm old, so I use old expressions. But you know, the markets climb a wall of worry. Holy smokes! I mean, I can give you a list of reasons why the market shouldn't go. I mean, the Federal Reserve is still talking about. Yeah, maybe they skip, but they're going to have to, you know, the bias is rates are going higher. You know, that used to kill a market. But, of course, we had the banking crisis and the regional one's still not over. That's going back for a few months. Uh, you know, tensions in Ukraine are not any better. In fact, I think they're worse. I'd make that case that I think they're worse. I, I've just got this litany of things that I can go through. And how does the market respond? Well, very strongly. Well, just before I forget, the markets, the interest rate markets right now are pricing both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates either in June or July, if not both of those mm-hmm. months. That'd be a quarter point bump in both of those months. And, and part of that has been uh, the robustness in the employment side of the economy. Yeah, inflation's come down a bit, but not that much. So, you know, the, 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 the central banks have made it clear and I think Tiff uh, Macklin made it really clear, like we don't, don't plan to cut rates this year. But to go back to the stock market, I, I'm saying that money managers have been defensive. Money managers control way more money you know, than just you and I and other individuals moving in and out of the market. They've been defensive and with good reason. I mean, the stock markets were down last year. The broad indices like the S&P was down more than 20%. The NASDAQ was down more than 30% last year. So they had a defensive um, mindset. And part of that was how much the central banks raised rates last year. You and I have talked about there's going to be consequences to the sharp increase in rates after a decade of near zero rates. Well, and we did have some consequences show up with the banking crisis back in, in March. Um, I, I think, though, that what we've seen in the last two months is or more is that the mega cap tech stocks are the market. 
like there's a handful, two handfuls of major cap tech stocks. If you took those out of the S&P, then, you know, as of two weeks ago, the S&P had gone nowhere this year. Now, when the mega cap stocks were running to the upside like that, people, again, money managers, were chasing them because they couldn't be in a position where they didn't own those stocks when they were reporting to the people whose money they were managing. And I think that FOMO, that chasing, is now gone to the broad market. Yeah, and I, I want to give you credit. You were talking about this. We were looking at this going back quite a bit, you know, in, on time, if you know what I mean, uh, to see this. And of course, but the challenge, I think, for a lot of individuals, and again, this is where you start with your time frame. You go, okay, am I a five-year kind of time frame? Am I or five days or five weeks? You know, I mean, I think that's very important in analyzing it. But I, I'm just saying it is difficult because the news isn't, as you said, they might be taking a pause here or a skip or whatever they said about interest rates. But, and the other thing that, you know, they got killed in the bond market too. You know, that's the one thing you can't escape. You know, we can have perceptions about what a stock is worth and we can bid it up on that basis. But the perception of what a 5% bond is worth isn't a perception. It's, it's math. You know what I mean? You don't have that same latitude. So the bond market did certainly take it on the chin. And, you know, as you said, I'm glad you pointed that out still looks like it's edging higher, uh, lower prices and higher rates. So, you know, that's, that's all there. And I, and I just start thinking to myself, where does this leave us? I, I just think there's a lot of mixed signals, as I was talking to Mike Levy about, mixed on the employment front, mixed on if you start looking at the real estate side, it's been very difficult in the States. You know, U.S. dollar very strong, and, you know, that's one of my favorites. I think that's one of the easiest still. I, I still have that longer-term time frame. It's going to end we're still five years away from it. Well, I've been, my, my best trade here, certainly over the last month, and I've been writing about this in my weekly blog, has been, I'm bullish the U.S. dollar. And I've, I've chosen to be short the euro. That's a way to do that. And I've been short gold as well. Now, again, time frames and sizing, you know, if you get that kind of detail, look on my website. But I, I think, I've seen this happen so many times when a market is positioned kind of entrenched almost in a view, this defensive point of view, and then you have to change. Uh, I can't emphasize this enough, that the money managers out there are, are compared to one another. And if you fall behind the typical or the, let's say, the leading money managers, you know, people start to question whether or not they want you to continue managing their money. So when the markets are breaking out like this, I mean, we've got Apple near all-time highs. We've got some of the laggard stocks are now playing a catch-up. It's like, you know, and one of the, my favorite things that I look at is volatility. The options volatility in the S&P index is now at a two-year low. That's kind of a what-me-worry signal. Mm-hmm. I mean, that way, yeah, actually, that makes me worry, by the way. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, so it should. <laughs> yeah. I, as I say, uh, mixed signals. Uh, and I think what cha the challenge also is, Vic, is that we had the consensus that we'd be in recession by now, but, or yes. certainly as more significant slowdown. As I talked with Mike Levy earlier, not reflected in the employment numbers yet. Still other people saying, no, it's a time frame issue. Wait till the second half of the year or the fourth quarter. You know, then we'll see how the market reacts. <clears throat> but as I say, I think it's a difficult environment for uh, traders maybe, but certainly for investors. And that's where you come back to the basics, which is manage your risk. 
Yeah, it, it is. Uh, well, Ke- Kevin Muir was here with us last week and said something to the effect of, you know, I'm finding things to do in other markets. I'm long Japanese stocks. I'm long Mexican stocks. I don't want my P&L to be dependent upon whether or not I can call the S&P. There's other things to do. And I thought, okay, I get that. You know, I, I have traded the S&P a little bit here over the last month uh, from the long side and the short side, but I've been much more comfortable just with, and for me, with a longer term trade being bullish on the U.S. dollar. Well, also, I'll give Kevin a pat in the back for that. Uh, Mexican peso has been so strong. And of course, their stock market, that's been a double win there for his subscribers to the macro tourist, which is, you know, stocks, Mexican stocks up, Mexican peso way up. So, yeah, he's had he's had a heck of a run. There you go. Vic, before I let you go, I got to say, hey. Next Saturday, you got the big golf tournament, Special O, Oceanside up, you know, in the Kuala area, area up there. I know you've been heavily training. I'm going to come up too, you know, and I haven't oh. been doing any training whatsoever. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, still six years away. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun tournament, Mike. Whether you win, lose, or draw, doesn't matter. And, and I'd like to say to the folks that are listening, uh, it is next week, June the 10th at Pheasant Glen in Qualicum. Just Google Oceanside Special Olympics if you'd like to play. If you can't play but you'd like to help out, you know, there's a spot there. You can donate some money. And believe me, this is a very worthy cause. We've got 50 special need kids in the Oceanside area. This is the only fundraiser we get all year long. And and we're planning, you know, to fund the the whole year's exercises with the money we raise uh, next week. So uh, thanks for bringing that up. And I'm also bringing my all-star, Grant Longhurst, who does so much, uh, you know, controls the Money Talks team here. But I'm bringing Grant over, too, because I, <clears throat> I haven't played in years, but Grant has. I, he's, he's, back, he's back on the course, so I'm bringing an all-star along with my wife, Kathy. And, well, uh, Kathy's going to be the strongest player on your team. I, I know there, that already. There's no doubt, but we'll see you then. I look forward to it. <laughs> Me too, Mike. Thanks. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, I'm always impressed how much, well, okay, how much BS, to not put too fine a point on it, how much BS we as voters are prepared to swallow from our politicians, especially when the facts tell such a different story. I suspect this is part of the transition, by the way, that we've gone through over the last decade plus, and that's where, and I mentioned it in the quote of the week, what we say is considered more important than what we do. I mean, this was at the heart of the virtue signaling epidemic that seems to undermine progress in so many areas. And I got to jump to climate change as an example, because I don't think there's a nation that talks more about climate change than pats themselves on the back. And yet you get our own environment commissioner telling us that Canada is dead last in the G7 in emission reductions. That's such a great example. And there's so many others. But I'm going to have to leave that for now. Maybe we could talk about it over a glass of dirty drinking water on First Nations reserves. But that's the context for this week's Goofy. Google Canada, uh, if you want to Google Canada affordable housing, you get about 4,340,000 hits. All political parties talk about their deep concern about affordable housing or high rents. Actually, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's got to be a prerequisite to even run for office in this country. You've got to talk about affordable housing. And it doesn't matter if you're talking municipally, provincially, or federally. But like the rest of the virtue signaling agenda, it's proving to be a lot more talk than action. But the goofy part is how many people continue to buy that stuff. 
I mean, we've gone way beyond fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I think we're something like fool me 1,224,000 times, shame on me. I mean, it's incredible. But the problem with emphasis on all talk while ignoring action, well, it has consequences. And in the case of housing, no meaningful progress has been made when it comes to affordability. And as we've been chronicling on Money Talks for years, the rental crunch continues to get worse, and it's going to get worse still. I think it's going to be a huge story. I mean, the lack of coordination of the three levels of government is nothing short of incompetence. And now, with the emphasis on increased immigration, we got a record number of student visas, some of which may stay, choose to stay in the country. It's dramatically increasing demand and will dramatically increase the shortage and put upward pressure on rents. And that's what concerns me. And then we can cue the politicians, of course. They'll get in front of the camera, other media expressing their deep concern about rents and affordability. And by the way, I'll do this another day, but they significantly add to the cost of permitting construction and purchase of new housing. So it's even a bit much on that kind of score. But let me finish by saying, while there's lots of competition, the biggest chunk of BS peddled by politicians is their talk about affordability when their actions tell a very different story. And I'm going to leave you with just one example from CMHC, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They estimate we need to build 5.8 million homes, all types, in the next nine years to restore affordability. You know what? 5.8 million in nine years. Now note, Canada's built less than 4 million homes in the last 30 years, and only 570,000 of those homes were rental units. No, as I say, a big story, but I think the solution starts with this absolutely saying no to their rhetoric and demanding action. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. I'm glad you've been with me. Just a reminder, though, you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. As we know, we got lots of stuff on that. But I was thinking during this time I've been away, there's so many stories. Government's involved in so much that impacts us directly, our standard of living, our lifestyles, etc. That that's why I've got to post stuff. And so I would encourage you to go to Money Talks Tweets. I'd encourage you to go to Michael Campbell's Facebook on Money Talks, or Money Talks on Facebook, rather, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, but also sign up for our free, our free email blast. You just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, keyword there, free, just sign in. We send you something a couple of times a week with new data, that kind of thing. Anyways, it's all part of the challenge to stay abreast of what's really going on that impacts us directly. And in the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week. Mm-hmm.